Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Battle Lines, Israel, Gaza. For some time, the podcast team here at The Telegraph have been planning to launch a new show about conflict, defence and the shifting tectonic plates of geopolitics following our extensive and sadly now long-running coverage of the war in Ukraine. We had aimed to get the new show off the ground in the next few months. Then, two weeks ago, our plans had to be sped up. Terrorist group Hamas unleashed pure, unadulterated evil in the world. But sadly, the Jewish people know perhaps better than anyone that there is no limit to the depravity of people when they want to inflict pain on others. Like every place I go, I go run away and I just find bombs and I find dead people. And like maybe one day I'll end up like them, but it's a really scary thing for me. <laughs> People telling me that, you know, mostly this is about Hamas, but they're also angry with absolutely everybody. I'm begging the world to bring my baby back home. The idea was always that each week, Telegraph journalists reporting from around the world will bring you analysis on global security, defence and geopolitics. But for now, our focus will be on the Israel-Gaza conflict. In this first episode of Battle Lines, I am joined by The Telegraph's Middle East correspondent, Natalia Vasilieva, Daniel Sheridan, our defence editor, both on the ground in Israel, and Sophia Yan, senior foreign correspondent, based in Turkey. I started by asking Natalia to sum up the news from the past few weeks and to talk to us about the things she had seen as a correspondent on the ground. Yes, obviously we're in the second week of the war in Gaza. About 2 million people are still stuck in Gaza under Israeli airstrikes with no way of getting out, while Israel is still mourning the victims of what has been described as Israel's biggest and worst terrorist attack. We had US President Joe Biden visiting, but the kind of messages that he left for Israel were a bit surprising for some people. He did say that the US stands very firmly for Israel and it was going to be backing it in whatever it does. It's going to back it in terms of missile defense and it's going to make sure that Israel has a way to defend itself. On the other hand, I think it was quite interesting the remarks that he made comparing the Hamas attack on October the 7th to September 11th in the U.S., saying that he understands that emotions run very high in Israel right now, but that Israel, quote, should not make the same mistakes in its war in Gaza, saying, direct quote, don't be consumed by that rage. Around the same time, we're still hearing that the Rafah crossing with Egypt, the only non-Israeli crossing out of Gaza, still hasn't been opening. There were negotiations to allow humanitarian aid. It hasn't come in. We're hearing that uh, the US and Israel have finally agreed to let the aid in, but there's still no sign that it, it has happened. 
again, it's been a very long two weeks here for everyone. I arrived in Israel. I basically moved to Israel at the end of September and I tried to take some time off and to take it slow. But then it all kicked off on day 12 for me in this country on October the 7th when we first heard about Hamas rocket attacks and then infiltrations. And starting from day one, I was on the road in the south for four days straight, going to villages and kibbutzes, which were overrun by Hamas, where neighbors would tell us about seeing the neighbors taking hostage, seeing actual battles in the street. One family we met, they literally had a Hamas fighter ringing up the intercom and showing up with an RPG. And the family was quite lucky to have this modern intercom with a camera, so they didn't open the door to a guy with an RPG. And obviously the devastation in, in Israel is quite significant, and it's not about physical damage that we're seeing in Gaza, which is definitely uh, beyond compare, but the fact that a lot of people in Israel have lost the sense of security that they used to have. I interviewed a number of people who lived in those kibbutzes and villages very close to the border with Gaza. Sometimes people would tell me that they would be living 600 meters away from the fence, that they could see People in Gaza hanging their laundry out of dry. But all of this time, Israelis had such a faith in their armed forces and the intelligence that they could never think that those infiltrations might be happening. But then obviously that idea of security was um, shattered as soon as that attack happened. When you look back over the past two weeks and you're reporting, Natalia, what stands out to you? Obviously, the scale of things that I've been seeing in this speed at which things have been deteriorating is quite astonishing because when I arrived in this country, you know, obviously West Bank is, is never calm and easy, but no one could think that we would end up in this massive armed conflict. Overnight, the south of Israel got really dangerous. We're seeing daily rocket attacks from Hamas. Because it's so close to Gaza, it's within the short range of missiles. So basically, there is very little chance to hide and there's really little time to hide. Those rockets are harder for Air defense to intercept because they are very they are very close to the border and basically you have something like twenty seconds to seek shelter. One of the stories that I that I did that that really struck me was a visit to a kibbutz on the border with Gaza. The kibbutz's name is Beeri, and this is basically the scene of one of the massacres where a group of Hamas gunmen entered, took several dozen people hostages, killed at least one hundred and eight people. And the destruction that I witnessed there, it was so, so enormous that I just heard yesterday that rescue teams recovered two more bodies from Beiri yesterday, you know, a, a full 12 days after, after that happened. And I witnessed quite eerie scenes when I went there last week. And as soon as I left the kibbutz and I talked to a colleague, his first question was, what, what did you see? Which I guess is a natural question. And my immediate reaction was, it wasn't about what I saw. Because, you know, yes, the destruction is there, but there were no sort of grisly graphic scenes. But it wasn't what you saw, it was what you, what you smell. Because like the smell, the stench of decomposing bodies, like literally hangs in the air. And you are, you're not in a room, you're not in a morgue, you're in an, in an open area. So that stench was completely suffocating. And it's just so tragic to see a place which looks so nice, well taken care of. You see how people would actually enjoy living there and why they felt safe, and suddenly like all that life that they had disappeared in one morning. 
Well, thank you very much, Natalia. Danny Sheridan, can I go to you? Obviously, Natalia's been there for a few weeks now, been reporting on the ground. You've just arrived, I believe, in Jerusalem. What have you seen? What have you been reporting on? As you say, I have only just arrived in Jerusalem. Commercial flights are not really travelling here anymore. So it's a case of getting on the few remaining ones that are still travelling to the area. And just being on the flight, you know, there were lots of Israelis who were saying to me that they were leaving the comfort of their homes in London to come back to their homes in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv because they felt compelled to be in the country despite the the threat of violence on their doorstep. I sat next to one woman who was just saying that she was absolutely terrified to be travelling home, but she couldn't not be there. And there seems to be quite a a sense of community spirit with people helping out, donating clothes to people who lost their homes, opening their doors, providing shelter, providing food, water, and not just for the victims of the attacks, but also getting together as much gear as possible to donate to soldiers. So that that was quite a good insight as we we travelled out to Israel. And in the run-up to me coming out here, as defence editor, my role has been focusing on what might the UK be doing to support Israel. We had it on the front page last week, I think, that Britain announced it would send a package of military support to help Israel. I spoke to some senior defence sources and they said that this was very much a package given with an emphasis of de-escalation. So they hope that by providing this kit, which includes warships, aircraft, a company of marines, that it will deter others from allowing this to escalate in the sense that they are showing Israel has friends that have kit and will use it if necessary. The UK's package was significantly smaller than what the US sent out. I mean, Biden put out an an aircraft carrier, a cruiser, destroyers. You know, in comparison, we've got two multi-role vessels that, while they are, you know, technically warships, they are designed to, to go to coastal regions and evacuate people, kind of more acting in a humanitarian scenario. And then there's one Poseidon aircraft. And that was really stressed to me that it won't be flying over Israel, it will be in the region. And defence sources wanted to make that very, very clear that it would be on the outskirts as opposed to being more antagonistic and and being closer to where we saw the fighting take place. Rishi Sunak, he's here in Israel for two days and everyone will be asking what more support has the UK pledged? Are we going to see more military packages that are being prepared if needed? There are lots of questions to be answered and I suppose we just have to wait and see what number 10 is willing to divulge because they are very conscious that while I said at the beginning the packages are being put out there as a deterrence, it may also be interpreted as an escalation in this war. Danny, can I ask, what's your sense about how, I mean, for many people in Israel and around the world, these brutal attacks by Hamas came as a shock, a huge surprise. We've heard Natalia talk about how people lived in these kibbutzes and Mm. and thought they were safe, and suddenly they weren't, and the biggest slaughter of Jews since the Holocaust. How do you think 
the violence over the past two weeks has changed how people in the defence industry, politicians, analysts, has changed their thinking? From the people I've spoken to, they were incredibly shocked that this could have happened under Netanyahu's government. Israel is famed for having one of the best defences in the world. And the fact that this could have happened under their noses has shaken people. I think it it's funny because we've been speaking a lot about the war in Ukraine and how we all must be putting more money into the defence budget and that we shouldn't rest on our laurels and we should be more aware that adversaries are all around, that others are watching, that people are are paying close attention. You know, we talk about the Indo-Pacific tilt a lot, but um, I think that the message here is that there are risks everywhere. And while the West might have its attention on a different part of the globe, other tensions are still brewing. And I think that while I said, you know, it was shock that Netanyahu had his eye off the ball in a way. I think perhaps the whole world might have, no one really expected this to happen. Everyone was flabbergasted to hear of the attacks. So I think it goes to show that perhaps there was a bit of underestimation on Hamas and its capabilities. And that's something that British armed forces will be looking to pay closer attention to now that this has taken so many by surprise. Well, an underestimation of Hamas's capabilities. The fact that, as you said, Danny, we've got other adversaries, other actors watching this conflict carefully. Sophia Yang, can I bring you in here? Could you speak a little bit about potentially some of those actors and some of the other threads and currents running through all of this? Uh, Yes. In terms of geopolitics, we're talking about a lot of different actors involved top of the list is Iran. It's no secret that Iran has spent billions of dollars over the years to fund, train, and support various militant groups based in countries that surround Israel. Iranian officials and Hamas leaders, they've talked about this very openly. And that's exactly the point, to hem Israel in. In some cases, just the specter of threat can be enough of a deterrent. What's playing out now in many ways is an indicator that Iran's plan is a success. A lot of concern growing now that this becomes a much wider regional conflict with more groups involved. Already there are other groups involved. The question is whether or not it escalates further. For instance, Hezbollah in Lebanon, you know, with Iranian support, Hezbollah has transformed from this underground resistance movement into a very significant political power player in Lebanon. It's considered the world's most heavily armed non-state actor. If they get even more seriously involved, Israel's got this northern front all bets are off. Some people would even say already all bets are off. And so it's a a big question of where we go from here. This could go in so many different directions. All of it feeds into Tehran's wider strategy to boost its influence as the dominant Arab power in the region, capable of sowing chaos, of carnage across this very wide geographical sphere. And it also means that Iran can deter attack on itself. This whole ambiguity over Iran's role, how much of a hand they had or didn't have, The fact that they can sort of say they didn't have a direct hand, and again, they've denied any involvement in the October 7 attacks, it just means that for the world, it's really very difficult to coordinate an effective international response. And in this sense, Iran is similar to China, always pushing in the gray area, giving itself some version, some veneer of plausible deniability. 
Sophia, we brought you onto our Ukraine the Latest podcast quite a few times to talk about the Chinese view of the war in Ukraine. And it's always very interesting to hear your view. Do we have any sense of how the Chinese leadership are viewing the events in Israel and Gaza? So very interestingly, China often says that they don't want to meddle in other countries' internal affairs. You've seen this with Russia, Ukraine. Of course, Chinese leader Xi Jinping has uh, close ties with Russian President Putin. But officially, they've been really clear not to call it anything more than just, they, they use very, very benign words to describe what's happening in Russia and Ukraine, right? They, they won't call it a, a, an official invasion from Russia's part. But it's very different when it comes to what's happening now with Israel and Palestine. And it goes back to decades and decades of history. It actually goes back to the Mao era. At that time, and please allow me this short history lesson, but during the Mao era, you know, China really saw Palestine, they saw this as a, a national liberation movement. And even today, they still have concerns over the ways Palestinians are being treated. The way they look at it is Israel as a colonizer, framing it in terms of apartheid. So in the past, China did provide material support to the PLO, to other groups, trying to fight against what they really saw as this colonization. And so this is really one very different case where China, to a certain extent, still sees this national liberation struggle happening. And they see Palestinians in this frame through this perspective. And it's something that really goes back many, many decades. China, of course, established diplomatic relations with Israel. So the way they talk about all this has started to change a little. But they still have maintained through all of this, this stance of calling for a two-state solution. And this is very much a departure from what you would normally perhaps think from China, because they always try to say, we're friends with everybody, we're not going to take a side, we're here with our big, big coffers, we want to invest in your country, we're friends, we won't tell you what to do in terms of human rights or politics, you do your thing and we do ours, right? That's always their take. But it's very different in this particular situation, because to a certain extent, China sees themselves also uh, on side with countries that have in, in their perspective, been a bit marginalized. Well, can I ask you all then? I mean, one of the threads running through this conversation already has been this question of escalation and de-escalation from what Danny said about the UK's, the US's support to Sophia's points about Hezbollah and Iran. I mean, I guess there's two questions here. Do you think we are escalating around the region for all of you? And also for us observers abroad who are listening to the news, what signs should we be paying attention to that might show us that the conflict is is escalating or, or de-escalating? What should we be looking for? I don't know who wants to come in first. I'm curious to know Natalia's opinion on this, because just looking at the FCDO advice from the UK, you're seeing yesterday it was put out that British nationals in Lebanon should uh, leave the country and return to the UK. And to me, that's always worrying when British nationals are told to leave a country abroad. But then I spoke to someone else and they said, oh, is it just the SCDO not wanting a problem? It's easier to get people home than have to deal with any consequences later. It's less a concern of an escalation on the border and more just a, you know, covering back situation. So I wanted to know what you thought about that. You know, in the first days of the war, our reporting mostly focused on, on the south. That was the flashpoint. This is where the rockets were coming from. And then, to everyone's concern, we started hearing reports that Hezbollah on the Lebanese border close to Israel's north was getting active. And, you know, before we knew it, we started hearing about daily rocket attacks. Obviously, there's nothing it's nowhere near as bad as what's, what's coming in from Gaza. Those attacks are very few. 
Mostly these are anti-tank missiles, which hit targets just at, at the border. They're not sending missiles to the other side of the country, like Hamas, which would be firing missiles at Tel Aviv. But things are getting quite tough in the north as well. I was there a couple of days ago, like the military activity that we saw in the south, in terms of the military hardware, tanks on the road. But, you know, villages have been evacuated. Several towns and villages on, on the border are out of bounds for reporters or anyone visiting. They basically turn into a militarized zone. So we have not seen... There was a couple of reports of infiltrations, obviously nothing to the scale of what we saw in the South. And the Israeli army was able to quickly deal with those infiltrations. But again, obviously everyone's fear is that Israel will have to fight on both... France, we haven't seen Hezbollah actively engaging, you know, as much as, I could, as it could, giving all of the resources that, that it has. But at some point, this definitely is a concern. And right now, I'm not seeing any signs of de-escalation. And again, obviously, if we see more activity from Hezbollah in the north of Israel, that would be a very big sign that things are actually escalating. Sophia, would you like to come in on that? From your experience watching this, what signs should we be looking for? I always like to take the 30,000, 50,000 foot perspective. You all know that by now. Um, And for a long time, not just me, but many experts have been thinking and talking about this divide that's been growing in the world, the West versus the rest. And China falls on the rest side, China, Russia, Iran on one side, the other, the U.S. and its allies. So this particular conflict, what happened on October 7th, in so many ways really cemented that divide. It just made so much more clear that this is a trend that perhaps the world cannot ignore. China, Russia, Iran on one side, I mean, these are countries that feel they've they've been told for so many years to abide by this international rules-based world order. An order, by the way, that they had no real say in drawing up. They simply weren't sitting at that table when all this was being hashed out. Now, they want more of a say. They want more influence on the global stage. And it seems like getting there might mean violent confrontation. Very sadly so. All this really difficult imagery that we've seen coming out of Israel. And so where we go from here, there's a big question mark. How does the world deal with this divide? Can there be a way to talk between the two sides. Danny and Natalia, I mean, do you think that's possible? We saw the the bombing of the Al-Ali Baptist Hospital in Gaza. I mean, there's two questions there. Do, you, do we think there's a route out of here which involves negotiation or, or talking? And secondly, we've spoken a bit about the future for Israel and de-escalation and escalation, but what does the future for, for Gaza look like right now? I think on the point of de-escalation, Biden and Sunak both don't want this ground invasion to happen. So if it does go ahead... I think that's when we are going to see a real turning point in this war. I think that is kind of the main reason why Rishi Sunak has come here. Not so much to say, you know, this is the other kit we can give you if if things get worse, but more to try and talk him down and say that invading Gaza is only going to perpetuate what is clearly an incredibly volatile situation. 
In terms of room for negotiations right now, I don't see any. I think Israel first drew a red line. They're saying that unless the hostages are back in Israel, it doesn't see any room for negotiations. And basically, it's, it's prepared to flatten Gaza, which is what has, it has been doing. I just saw recent figures from the UN, which suggests that a quarter of all houses in Gaza have already been destroyed. Again, I would say for the negotiations to happen, there would have to be some intermediary, Qatar, Turkey, whoever, who would secure the release of those hostages. Obviously, yes, what happened at the hospital, at the Al-Ahli hospital in Gaza is not, is not helping anyone and emotions run very high. And I would like to say that like being here in Israel, I would, I would think that people are getting radicalized because it's a small country and everyone either knows someone who lived in one of those kibbutzes or knows someone whose relatives have been killed or kidnapped. So what happened on October the 7th, you know, hit very close at home. So a lot of people are consumed by grief, anger, and it looks like the Israeli leadership is making its decisions based on this grief and anger. You know, this is what Biden warned Israel. So right now, um, unless those hostages return, I just don't see any room for negotiations. So Biden's quote was, don't be consumed by that rage after 9-11. While we sought justice and got justice, we made mistakes. Natalia, you mentioned there that according to the UN, a quarter of houses have already been flattened in Gaza. Mm. Where are the people going? Do we know? Yeah, well, for starters, I think it happened at the end of last week. I mean, all of the days that I've been spending here is, is one big blur. At some point, the Israeli forces told Gazans in Gaza City and in the north of Gaza to evacuate south, promising that they would have a safe passage, that this would be the area where they would not get bombed. A lot of people I know try to evacuate to the south, to Han Yunis and neighboring towns. We see that airstrikes have been happening across the Gaza Strip. There's definitely no safe place for anyone to hide. Palestine's three biggest aid organizations yesterday issued a statement, in in fact, saying that nowhere is safe in Gaza, there's, there's nowhere for Gazans to go. And that bombing campaign, there's definitely, there's no end inside for those bombing campaign and people are basically left to fend for, for themselves. As some of our listeners might know, Hamas is famous for building this extensive network of underground bunkers and tunnels. But if you're a civilian in Gaza, there's nowhere for you to hide. There are no civilian air raid shelters. There's basically no safe place there and you just have to Pray for the best. And obviously, there's no way out of Gaza, as, as I've said, because all of the crossings have been stopped, have been closed. And all of the promises about Egypt opening the Rafah crossing have not materialized yet. We have yet to see that to happen. Not a single civilian has been able to leave Gaza since the bombing campaign started. Could we talk a little bit about disinformation? It feels certainly watching this from London, that there's a bit of a tide of disinformation across social media that's often being picked up by some outlets. How have you all seen that? Is, is my sense correct there? And how do you, when you're reporting, deal with this disinformation? For me, it was just, I was on Twitter and saw the breaking news of what happened at the hospital and how quickly people were jumping to conclusions about who was responsible. And then it just facilitates this outpouring of abuse on both sides. And it just shows that disinformation only is it dangerous. It also brings out a very ugly side to this narrative. So I think that with the ability to use the internet where, you know, anyone can put out a theory and then before you know it, it's been retweeted thousands and thousands of times, I think that 
just remaining clear-headed and not reporting things as facts and until it's actually been proven is crucial to covering something like this but that is so far my my first kind of taste of it since getting involved in reporting on the situation yeah i mean we all remember the night it happened i just want to say that the hospital bombing did not happen in a vacuum it happened at the end of one week of intense bombing when the whole of Gaza was flattened down by Israeli airstrikes. So it's quite natural for people to jump at the conclusion that that hospital was targeted by the Israeli army. That's quite a natural assumption to make. Another point I really want to make is that none of us present company, we're not on the ground. And it's very hard to verify anything that's coming there. There's a small group of local journalists who are still there Some of them have lost their family members. Some of them are trying to take care uh, of themselves and putting their family safety first. Some of them are trying to report in those incredibly hard conditions with a sporadic supply of water, electricity, you know, you name it. So it's very hard to get facts from on the ground in Gaza, except for the imagery and videos that we sometimes receive. So um, if there is an excuse for that, that would also be an excuse. And, you know, when we heard Israel denying its involvement in it, everyone who's covered this conflict could remember a number of cases where Israel would deny its involvement in other suspected war crimes, where its involvement was quite evident. And it did take the responsibility sometime down the line. And, you know, if you want a recent example, many would remember the case of Shirin Abu Akhlech, the Al Jazeera correspondent who was killed during an Israeli raid on Jenin in the West Bank in May last year. That incident happened in the street. Everyone saw it. And Israel initially claimed that it was Palestinian militants who killed her, despite vast amounts of evidence that she was shot by an Israeli sniper. Israel eventually admitted that it was its soldiers that most likely killed Shirin. But to this day, there has been no accountability over her death. And this is the context in which, you know, we we see all this blame traded on an industrial scale right now. And we should say, of course, that the bombing at the hospital has been denied by both sides. The Israelis claim it's a misfiring Palestinian rockets. Hamas claims it was an Israeli strike. Sophia, let's pull back a little bit again. You've moved to Turkey. You've talked a bit about China's role in all of this, Iran. What about Turkey? I've been in Istanbul for just over 48 hours, having relocated here. It's clear from the get-go that the government and the general public are on the Palestinian side. Just walking around, you see the flag of Palestine hanging in windows. There have been some pro-Palestine rallies here, but not quite on the scale of what you've seen in other parts of the world, because there's very little doubt as to where people stand. The regime here, Erdogan's regime, and Turkey's stance for quite a while has been behind the Palestinians without denying Israel's right to exist. Just earlier this week, Erdogan told Sunak, Rishi Sunak, that Western countries should refrain from taking, quote, provocative steps regarding the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And he also said that Western powers must, this is a quote, remember the unkept promises to Palestine and do what is necessary. So you have to remember Erdogan came up in the Islamist tradition. He's personally very passionate about Palestine. And again, going back a bit in history, in 2009, Erdogan hit global headlines. He had this very angry exchange in Davos with the now late Israeli president, Shimon Peres. They were on a panel together, Erdogan clearly very upset with the way things were going. And he says to Perez, quote, when it comes to killing, you know well how to kill. And he stormed off the stage 
And this was something that made very clear that he's personally very passionate about Palestine. It's not a new sentiment by any means when it comes to how Erdogan's looking at this, how Turkey is thinking about this. And you have to remember that Turkey's changed a lot. It's no longer the same secular republic it once was. Lots of Turkish people will tell you this, even if you don't ask them, regardless of whether they think that this change is a good thing or not. It's debatable as to when things shifted, many would say, over the last decade or so. But the point being is that there's this new-ish regime in place with its own way of looking at the world framed similarly to some other countries like China as a, a sort of a struggle against the West. And so, again, this goes back into the, the division I was speaking about before, the West versus the rest, which is a very pithy way to put it. And in so many ways, looking at how Turkey will handle things going forward will be very interesting because Turkey really is at this intersection, economically, legally, militarily. It's still integrated with the West. Turkey's a member of NATO. Politically, arguably, it sits on the other side. Turkey, Natalia had mentioned before, could even play a hand in, in hostage negotiations, trying to get Israeli hostages out of Gaza. You know, there's so many ways this could go. And Turkey really is at this very core point. And so there's a lot of questions that still remain. Well, just to wrap this up, because I realise we're coming to the end of our time, um, Natalia, you've moved from Turkey to Israel. Daniel's just arrived in Israel. Sophia's just moved to, to Turkey. What would your advice be to the two of them? Oh, gosh, uh, that's a lot. For Turkey, yeah, it's, it's actually it's quite ironic because for a year and a half, I used to live in this neighbourhood, which basically bordered on a proper shantytown. And every day I would pass by signs free Gaza, the holy city of Jerusalem and all of those graffitis sprayed on, on the wall. So that support for Palestine runs very deep. It definitely affects Turkish foreign policy. It was just recently, I can't remember the dates, and please forgive me for that, but I think it was only two years ago when Israel appointed a new ambassador in Turkey after quite a long hiatus over another diplomatic scandal and just before this war started, it looked like Turkey was on its way to mend relationship with Israel. That embassy was thriving. Turkey was very keen to do business with Israel. There were lots of tourists. So in terms of bilateral relationship, this is definitely something that's under, under threat right now. In terms of what's, what's happening in Israel, obviously this war, they had the initial Hamas attack and Israel's retaliation have changed this country overnight. This country hasn't seen this scale of hostilities in about 50 years. We're talking about 300,000 reservists mobilized across the country. Right now, if you walk around Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, things look more or less normal, but at every single shop or a workplace, there's someone who had been called up to fight. So this country is preparing for a protracted war and definitely things are not going to be the same. Again, how long Israel will be prepared to keep Gaza under siege? How long it will wait for a ground invasion? Will the invasion happen? These are all big unknowns, but definitely what, what we've been hearing and reading about this country in the past two or three years with the judicial reform and, and everything, a lot of those issues are no longer relevant right now. Thank you, Natalia. Danielle, what will you be looking at now you're on the ground in Israel? I feel like for me, the priority right now is speaking to the families of hostages and trying to tell their stories as much as we can. There's a lot of terrified people waiting to, to find out what has happened to their loved ones. And I think it's important that we don't forget that and keep, keep covering it as much as possible. And then going forwards, 
it's kind of you never really know what each day has in store when you're on the road and I suspect I'll just be taking each day as it comes out here. Thank you very much Natalia and Danny. Um, Sophia would you like the final words? I'm looking a lot at whether or not there is some sort of diplomatic resolution that could that could help. Ideally, with U.S. involvement and influence, you'd think that cooler heads would prevail. There's a lot of anger and trauma amongst the Israelis, amongst the Palestinians, even across the world. This is something that is so fraught with so much tension that goes back, you could say, even centuries. And in Israel, as Natalia was speaking before, they are gearing up, it seems, for a very strong military response. If it happens when it happens, would that mean that they begin to lose some support in the West? Sentiments, of course, in the West amongst the general public is very divided and complex. In the U.S., for instance, demonstrators have gathered in D.C. You see slogans like Jews for a ceasefire. Obviously, the point here calling for a ceasefire does not mean an individual stands on one side or the other of Israel or Palestine. But really, they're calling for a halt to violence and atrocities, to really think of all the human suffering that is happening right now. And so is there some way that everyone could just sit and find a way out of this without further bloodshed? Uh, Is that possible? And that's a really big question because, again, these lines have been drawn. There's so much hurt. And for both sides, there is, to a certain extent, an interest to make things right in their own way, in their perspective, right? To find a way to get some sense of justice, however you want to define that. And so I think going forward, perhaps, is there a more high-level solution that could be discussed to prevent things from escalating further? Any final points from anyone before we wrap up? I just urge listeners to keep reading our reporting. What the guys on the ground have already done has been fantastic. And I think it's important that people keep reading so that our journalism can continue. Battle Lines is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our news, analysis and dispatches from the ground in Israel and Gaza, subscribe to The Telegraph or sign up to Dispatches, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from contributors to this podcast. If you appreciated the podcast, please consider following Battle Lines on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. As disinformation is a particular problem during conflict, we are relying on your support more than ever. Battle Lines is part of wider Telegraph foreign coverage in our podcasts. If you're interested in finding out more about the war in Ukraine, you can listen to Battle Lines' sister podcast, Ukraine the Latest. This episode of Battle Lines was produced by me, David Knowles, and executive producer, Louisa Wells.